the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. Please. Welcome to the Tomb of Ideas Christmas Party. That's right. Uh, you, of course, know my um, co-host, Trey. Right, and and this other person you just heard is James, and uh, we're celebrating the holidays. Yep, so grab yourself a drink. There's plenty, plenty. I think one of our guests might have knocked over a liquor store, with, which would <laughs> explain the blood the blood trail. Right, right. And, and, of course, it wouldn't be a party without guests, and we have some very special guests, yep. like Art Carney, Beatrice Arthur. Harvey Corman, Diane Carroll, Jefferson Starship. Uh, okay, not quite, but close. Wait, no, you're right. Sorry, I was thinking the Star Wars Holiday Special. Right, yeah, that that is the Star Wars Holiday yeah. Special. E- e- easy to mix those up, yes. Yes, yes, although I'm pretty sure Sean McGinnis is wearing eyeliner. <laughs> I mean, it's understandable. Have you, it's festive. You've seen the Holiday Special, right? Oh, every year. Yeah, you, you see how much eyeliner Luke Skywalker is. Wearing. He's not. He's wearing mascara. He is just yes. straight up wearing mascara. The, the, the riff tracks joke is that he looks like he is about to perform in a kabuki play. Like, <laughs> I have done theater. I have worn makeup before. I have never worn sure. quite that much makeup. Yeah, and I, I've never heard a good explanation for why. Hide the. I don't think it's. Due to the the car accident. No, I think it might be due to the... Because I think that happened after. I think it might be due to the cocaine. Well, I mean, everyone involved in that production had to be, like, blazed out of their minds. Absolutely. (laughs) Like, you know, it may be... It may be holiday special, but the only snow you saw was in the dressing rooms. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. But... We're not here to talk Star Wars, as fun as that is. No, and we did that. We did tangentially that connected. Marvel, exactly. Yeah. Marvel and Star Wars have a long history together. Save the company. Yep, yep. But what we're here to talk about as we enjoy this sort of festive get together is continuing from our previous holiday episode. We thought it'd be fun to do one of those classic vintage Marvel holiday special comics that. They used to come out pretty regularly in the 90s. Yep. So we're going to go ahead, carrying on from last year, we're going to go ahead and do the Marvel Holiday Special 1992. And I love this one as a kid. 93. But the natural progression is 1992. Right. But that one didn't really have any characters that fit the mandate of our show. But it had a Hanukkah story, Trey. I know. I know. Hold on. I got to read something. I got to. I gotta read a whole other comic. Give me a... So, while James is reading, I guess I will go ahead and take a look at the first story we've got for today, 
which is Hopes and Fears, which is a, a Spider-Man story written by Stephen Grant with art by Pat Broderick, colors by Glennis Oliver, letters by Brad Joyce. And as with all the other stories in this issue, the editor is Renee Witzletter and the editor-in-chief is Tom DeFalco. So we open outside Bloomingdale's in Manhattan. Peter Parker and Mary Jane are exiting the store. Peter is overloaded with bags of gifts, and MJ says they need to stop at just one more store. And as you know, Peter, women it, always be shopping. <laughs> uh, MJ goes ahead to the store. Peter, I guess, is going to meet her there later. When suddenly, overhead, above the skyline, he sees what appears to be. A, a meteorite or, or falling star or something streaking through the sky. Because Peter is a superhero, he races over to see what's going on. And as Spider-Man, he realizes that it's not a falling star, but in fact, a, a flaming angel crashing to the earth. Not to be confused with Warren Worthington III, despite the fact he looks just like Warren Worthington III. The, yes, the only reason yes. you know it isn't... Uh, that the X-Men angel at this point is because he would be blue. Right, right. In the 90s, he didn't actually look as much like this. I've seen some comics from the 90s, though, where, like, he looks a lot like this, except for blue. Sure. But, and with metal wings. Oh, yeah, the 90s. Okay, never mind. Go ahead. Carry on. God, I hate his uh, The angel crashes through the sidewalk down into the subway tunnels below, and Spider-Man follows and discovers... Uh, a bunch of small demons carrying the angel's body away. And it turns out they're carrying him to Mephisto, dun, who is dun, seated dun. on a throne. In fact, it seems like very suddenly we are... Yeah, it actually is in the dialogue, if I'd paid closer attention. Spider-Man crosses through a spiritual threshold into an everlasting darkness of the soul, which is why suddenly everything looks weird and trippy in a Doctor Strangey kind of way. Mephisto is seated on a large stone throne... In the background, demons are strapping the angel into this torture execution device thing that looks very painful. And Spider-Man demands answers. Mephisto reveals that this is not just any angel, but in fact the spirit of Christmas, which Mephisto is going to utterly destroy. And Mephisto challenges Spider-Man to essentially a game, a bet, a wager. Save the angel... And Spider-Man can take him freely. But if Spider-Man fails to save the angel, Spidey's soul belongs to Mephisto. And if Spidey refuses to play at all, the spirit of Christmas will die. And Spidey agrees to this, rushes into action, tries to save the spirit of Christmas. Mephisto, despite saying he won't do anything to stop Spider-Man, speaks words of doubt and... and uncertainty and and basically taunts Spider-Man the whole time, kind of symbolically sapping him of his strength and willpower. Spider-Man's webbing, which he was using to hold back parts of this torture device, break, and it seems like the spirit of Christmas is gone. Mephisto revels in his victory, saying that he doesn't make wagers when the outcome is uncertain, and Mephisto takes Spider-Man's soul. He pulls it out of his chest, like the, the guy in, in Temple of Doom pulling someone's heart out. Kalima. Just with, uh, without the Kalima chant. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And 
Mephisto is essentially pledging to plunge the world into darkness and despair when suddenly, just like at the end of How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Mephisto is stopped by people singing Christmas carols. Yahoo for a Yahoo for a welcome Christmas, Christmas Day. And the spirit of Christmas appears triumphant because essentially he is bigger than any single body that as long as people celebrate Christmas and have hope and joy in their hearts, he, the spirit, will continue to exist. And Spider-Man gets his soul back and Mephisto disappears in a sort of huff and Spider-Man asks if they should chase him down and the spirit of Christmas says no that this ritual is older than than any either of them, and that in some form, this duel between light and darkness happens every year. Just then, there's sort of a flash of light, and Peter Parker appears in his street clothes, still carrying presents, outside his apartment door. And Mary Jane arrives and asks if he remembered the Christmas tree, which of course he did not because he was busy fighting the literal devil. But just then they open the door, and there is a very nice, tiny Christmas tree on the table inside the apartment, decorated and lit. And as MJ embraces Peter, the spirit of Christmas appears over the tree, smiling over them. Because that's what Christmas is made of. Yeah. Mercy and love. Yeah. So this is a sweet little story. Uh, We see... It is. We see Spider-Man's first meeting with Mephisto... Here, apparently. Right, which goes better than at least one future meeting. All right, let's talk about it. God damn it. <laughs> God. I mean, we had to go there, I right? Did, did, uh... Right? Oh. I mean, we'll have to do that story someday, right? No. No. It's a Mephisto story. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I would. I... Listeners, write into us. Tell us if you want us to cover the story where Mephisto ruined Spider-Man's life for like a decade. I would sell my marriage and never tell us no. <laughs> so, so okay, yeah, that's ironic. So like, okay, Spider, like, there's a panel here where Mephisto talks about like he's gonna crush the spirit of Christmas, and Spider-Man's like, "Yep, no." I'm like, "Oh, yep. Yep. really? Like, <laughs> destroying your marriage is fine. The spirit of Christmas." Heavens no. He well and and yeah. He puts up more of a fight for Christmas here than he does for his marriage in like ten years time. Right. Although doesn't MJ end up like actually making the deal? I mean I'm not defending it. I think it's a poorly written story, but I think the final call is made by MJ, not Peter, in that story. <sighs> I haven't read it in a long time, but that's my memory of it. It's just, uh, just like, it's just, I hate that story so much. Yep. Yep. I I agree. We eventually got good Spider-Man stories after it. Yes. But it took a while. Yes. And reading the story just makes me remember how much I miss the marriage. Yeah, yeah. I feel that every time we go back to <clears throat> these, like, 80s, 90s Spider-Man stories. Yeah, I, I, I miss the marriage. And so, uh, it, it's just so out of character for everyone involved. And yeah. it's just, 
for a stupid status quo change that was put forth by man children who don't think that a married character is relatable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll say this though. I really like the art in this story. It's fine. Yeah. Perfectly fine. Perfectly fine art. It's it's Pat Broderick and and Pat Broderick does good stuff. I like the underarm webbing. Yep. Yep. Always a good touch. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, um, Mephisto looks appropriately Mephisto-y, but in a very 90s kind of way. Yeah. Uh, it, it It is a bit funny to it, me that the angel is just some bl- blonde dude in Armani. Yeah, yeah. Not a lot of effort went into his design. I mean, he really does look a lot like Michael in the film Michael, except he's blonde and not John Travolta. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I was thinking of. Uh, and oh yeah, he's definitely Fabio. Yeah, Fabio. Yeah. So the thing I sent James, which is such a lovely thing to do in an audio medium, <laughs> is to send pictures. But uh, Fabio's cameo from The Exorcist Three, where he appears as an angel in the dream sequence. Yeah. Which would have been 1990, so just a, a few years before this. So just in time for it to appear on like cable. While the artist is drawing right. this. Yeah. <laughs> or or be it Blockbuster or whatever. Yeah. And we mentioned Pat Broderick, of course, for our, I mean, as far as your and my personal comic interests, co-creator of Tim Drake. Yeah. I don't really know his Marvel work as well. I know he was at Marvel for a long time. He did a lot of Spider-Man stuff, especially on the Clone Wars era. That I've probably read a bunch of his stuff and just didn't clock that it was him. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, to the story's credit. It is a lot better than One More Day. It is. Well, it also, it's a very economical story. This is what? One, two, three, like a 12-page story. Mm-hmm. And it has, like, like it is a story. There is a beginning, middle, and end with stakes and conflict and resolution. You know, it's not just sort of a gag. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Like, this, this, is, this is a Spider-Man story that happens to be set at Christmas. Yeah. I, I like Broderick's Peter Parker and MJ. Yes. Like the superhero action stuff is good too, but but I, I like that that's always sort of my measure of a good Spider-Man artist is how well do, do they handle the out of costume everyday stuff. And I think I think those moments here are very good. Yeah. That that said, you know, if an angel is going to give me a Christmas tree, I kind of expect something a little bit more spectacular than a tiny little table tree. I mean, they're in a Manhattan apartment, though. Like, anything bigger than that, and it's like Christmas vacation where the tree is, like, sticking out the window or something. <laughs> and I'm sorry. They start making out, the, the and the, the smiling angel emerges from the tree to watch. Like, <laughs> I just... It's like, don't, don't mind me. Don't mind me. <laughs> I, I just get it again for our listeners out there. I just gave Trey a creeper stare. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and I, I do like the caption as MJ makes out with Peter. Somewhere, Mephisto rants and curses, but his screams go unheard on this peaceful Christmas night. <laughs> I just like that that caption is on top of an image of MJ kissing Peter. <laughs> He really hates the marriage. <laughs> right? This is the origin of that right yeah, here. there you go. <laughs> Con- 
continuity. Marvel continuity. Yeah, it all goes back to to a Christmas ish to Christmas holiday special. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So funnily enough, our next story actually takes place well, it starts anyway, at a cocktail party. That's right. Very familiar setting. And uh, hey, let's get Andy Andy Andy, Andy, come here. What what? What? <laughs> what? What well, you know, I we thought you'd want to do like a segment with us. Yeah. Well, I'm at this party anyway, and I don't know anyone, but okay, go on then. You, you like Nick Fury stories, right? I love Nick Fury stories. I, I like how well. you say you don't know, Michael Bailey's right over there, and you just guys just don't, <laughs> you just don't associate outside of podcasting? <laughs> I don't, I know. <laughs> I don't talk, that, that's all, that's all for show. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we've got this Nick Fury story, it's called Downtime. Writer and artist is Howard Chaikin. Letter is Brad Joyce. Color says Bob Rosa, Rosas. Rosas? Yeah. I've, Rosas. Got, I've got Joe Rosas. Joe Rosas. Wow. That's because I can't read. That's enough eggnog for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's why I just stick to the wassail. You promised me there'd be mulled wine. <laughs> promised me there'd be whiskey. <laughs> That's my fault. That is fitting for a Nick Fury story, though. Mm-hmm. So, Andy, why don't you tell us about this Nick Fury story? Nick Fury's a curmudgeon <laughs> because it's Christmas. He's blowing everyone off from celebrating Christmas because he's miserable about Christmas. There's a running thread through this Christmas special <laughs> that you may notice if you listen to the entire episode or read the issue. However, he happens to get a letter that has been delayed by the post office since 1943. Now, I know the American Postal Service <laughs> has its issues. As does ours, but 50 years to deliver a letter? Anyway, this letter causes Luke Luke Skywalker, not Luke Skywalker, Nick Fury. Don't know where Luke Skywalker came from. Maybe I have had a whiskey. Causes Fury <laughs> to change his mind entirely, and he miraculously comes up with Christmas presents. That was the most miraculous thing about this story. He miraculously comes up with Christmas presents. He goes to Dum Dum Dugan, and he gives everyone a present and celebrates Christmas, and Dum Dum reads the letter, and it's basically some old girlfriend of Nick saying, let's live for the moment, because we don't know what the future's going to bring. The end. It's, 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 it's Pamela. Like, it's, Pam- it's Pamela Hawley from Howling Commandos. From yes, Howling Commandos. She, it is, she, sorry. We get, we, you know that, I think, for any of our listeners who um, listen to Make Ours Marvel, may remember her death. Right. Or, you know, just read Howling Commandos. Right. But no, because yeah. that's one of the more significant moments in that book early on, sort of solidifying that, yes, these characters can die. This is yeah, this is a war comic. Die. It's yeah. a World War II comic. So, yeah. so that, that, that is kind of like digging deep into Nick's past history. Yeah. So that and kind of, course, of has the... a little bit of emotional resonance to it. And it's, yeah. Nick, it's Howard Chaykin, so the art's lovely. Yeah. Right. And of course, this is 1994, so years before she would come back as the winter candy striper. <laughs> <laughs> and Nick couldn't contain himself because of the uniform. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So. But, yeah, see, kind of, I kind of picked this one thinking it'd be a bit more action packed than it is. <laughs> right. You know, it's got some lovely little character moments and it's very sweet. And I did like Nick having the argument with the, the two old dudes in the bar and them thinking he's a kid and doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, that was the best part, in my opinion. The, the two yeah. old old fellas being like, you remember? You remember when we fought Hitler? 
And yeah. like, yeah, and Nick Fury's like, yeah, and they're like, get the fuck out. Yeah, it's like for some reason up, it comes up on Waldorf and Statler. <laughs> yep. For some reason, I just really like the idea of Nick and Dum Dum going to mass and then just talking through it. Yeah, well, Dum Dum isn't. <laughs> Dum Dum's been respectful. <laughs> <laughs> Nick's just been a massive dickhead. <laughs> Even though it's his idea to go. Yeah, and then he gives Dugan grief at the end. Yep. And it's like, <laughs> Nick, you, you've been a little bit overboard on the, you know, the Christmas Grinch stuff. Huh. But, you know, it pays off at the end when you get that nice little letter that's been delayed by 50 years. I ain't letting that go. <laughs> because it <laughs> fell behind a file cabinet. Yeah, and I love, I love the letter that the post office sent it. We hope it's not caused too much grief. It's 50 years late. <laughs> How do you know the guy's still alive? Right. Well, well, now right. it's se- it'd be 70 years. Sure. Sorry. Crap, it'd be 80 years? Yeah. Sliding timeline. Yeah. Which makes the scene in the bar even more funny. Yeah. Because right. <laughs> those guys would be ancient now. <laughs> Nick yep. has wandered into an old folks home. <laughs> I do I do really like the, the Chaykin art, though. Yeah, the art's lovely. The art's brilliant. Chaykin excels at period stuff. I don't know if you've been reading his Hey Kids comics, which is a Not very regularly, familiar yeah. name for some reason, <laughs> but that, that has some lovely art in it, and any times he's done 1960s period stuff, he's always worth looking at. 1940s as well. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that Nick Fury was a wing walker at one point. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. Yep. I will but, say, if, if if the story had more than eight pages to play with, I would have liked something more of a, a, a sort of a Christmas Carol type thing, but with Fury having to deal with past, present, and future. I would like more punching of Nazis. Like, you know, you got Nick Fury here. Just just give us an excuse. Right, tis I, the season. Yeah. I think a more interesting tack would have been it's a World War II story set with the Howling Commandos. Right. Mm-hmm. How did the Howling Commandos celebrate Christmas? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's his first Christmas without Pam, too. So, Yeah, possibly. Sure. Um, as, I, as I say, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's very entertaining and quite sweet, and it pulls at the heartstrings. The only problem is when you don't read it on its own, when you read it as part of the rest of this Christmas special... They've all pretty much got the same basic story. Yeah, there's a similar arc, I think, that that carries through. Mm. Yeah. But, um, you know, again, the art is absolutely brilliant because it's Howard Chicken, and it starts off with a lovely splash page of the She-Hulk and Wyatt Wingfoot celebrating Christmas with She-Hulk dressed in a Father Christmas outfit, and that makes me feel funny for some reason. <laughs> that is... The artist on that is... Pat Olaf. Yeah. Yeah. It's Olaf and Golden. So yeah. I presume that's Michael Golden. I, I would think so. I Probably. Presume. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's nice. It is, that it is a is great it, splash. Nice and little, up. nice little splash there. Anyway, Andy, thank you so much for you know helping us with this segment. We'll let you get back to your celebrating. It's yes. okay. I, I believe somebody over there has just brought a bottle of Glenfiddich, so I'm going to go knit one of them off him. <laughs> oh, okay. he he's gone. He, he, I've never moved, seen anybody move across the room that fast. Yeah. Really kind of scary. Hey kids, comics! It was the dawn of a new age of comic book podcasting. Hey kids, comics was a dream given form. A place where two generations of comic book fans could work out their differences peaceably. It was a humorous place where nothing was sacrosanct and it was our last best hope for joy. 
but all things end. But from endings can come new beginnings. This is the return of a comic book podcast. The year is 2023. The name of the show is Hey Kids Comics. Michael and Andrew are back with an all-new look at old comics and all old looks at new comics. You can go home again. Hey Kid Comics, monthly from Two True Freaks and wherever you get your comics-related podcasts. Hey Kids Comics! now for the holidays on DVD and video. And we're back to Tomb of Ideas with more of the Marvel Holiday Special from 1993. And then our next story is... It's a humor piece. I I, I use the word humor. Yeah, in big old quotation marks here. (laughs) We have the gift of the Marvelites... Writer is Barry Jingle Bells Dunner. Art is by Mary Marie Severin. Renee Mrs. Claus Wetterstauter is editor. Tom Scrooge DeFalco, editor-in-chief. In the Marvel offices, editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco reviews his list of employees and decides that he's giving them all fruitcake for Christmas this year. On his way out the door... He sees the late great Mark Grunwald working at his working hard at his desk. I like the joke here that he's working on the latest Marvel Universe handbook and that he's going to feature diagrams of his guardian basements and bathrooms. Because that's the kind of thing that Mark Grunwald was known for. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, he's actually looking at his shopping li- his Christmas shopping list and realizes that he does not yet have a gift for his boss, Tom DeFalco. At around the same time, Tom DeFalco realizes that he doesn't have a gift for Mark Grunwald. DeFalco rushes to the bank to get money out to get a gift for perhaps one of the greatest editors ever Marvel ever had, but unfortunately, the bank has closed. Meanwhile, Tom DeFalco tries to get money out of the ATM, and the ATM is out of money. Desperate... The two men make noble sacrifices. DeFalco sells his last box of his favorite cigars while Mark Grunwald cuts off his signature ponytail, each hawking their items so they could buy gifts for the other. And of course, Mark Grunwald has bought Tom DeFalco a cigar lighter and Tom DeFalco has bought, bought Mark Grunwald a hairbrush. Didn't realize that it's, it's not... The gift you get, but the thought that oh wait no it's the nineties they realize they have credit cards, <laughs> right? This is this is yuppie humor. Yeah, yuppie humor, crippling debt. <laughs> Fortunately for Tom DeFalco, he did use the Marvel credit card. Unfortunately, <laughs> that does lead the company to bankruptcy just a few years down the road. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I, I do like the the final panel with the ponytail taped back onto the back of his head. Yes, I, I like that. That was that was funny. And did you look at the books on Grunwald's desk? Yeah, I panels? noticed those when I was doing the summary, and I was like, I, I can't, I can't stop to read these. We got we- we- Weapon Anvil's Axe, 
birthdays, villain sewer maps, wing structure, Tony Stark complete X-rays, Tony and medical, Stark history. medical history. Yep. Bad guys with tails. Yep. One-eyed villains and their op- opticians. Animal sidekicks. Uh, yep. Some fun <laughs> little things. Yes. All of which I fully believe Grunwald actually had on his shelf. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, I would absolutely believe that. So, um, you know, there's not much to this one. It's it's basically the sort of thing that you would have gotten in, like, not Brand Eck or Crazy back in the day. Yeah. And, of course, the old chestnut, like, oh, you sold your thing, and I bought you, th- but I bought you this for the thing. Well, you sold your thing, and I bought you this for that thing. Yeah, I, I always think back to the MST3K version where TV's Frank sells his hair. <laughs> well, that's kind of what Mark Grunwald did here. So, right, you know. and, and all that Forrester gets for him, it, well, he forgets to get him anything, and so he signs over a $25 bond. Yeah, which just came mature two years ago. I think this year, actually. Oh, boy! I think this is the year it matured. Frank can retire. So he, TV's Frank. He gets that $25. <laughs> oh. Just in time for inflation to make it worth even less. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it, it's cute. I mean, it's fun seeing Marie Severin do caricatures of the, the bullpen. Yeah. She was very, very skilled at that. And, you know, and especially with DeFalco as editor-in-chief at the time, like, it, it's kind of fun seeing the boss letting himself be made fun of a little bit. Yeah. It's a fairly inconsequential story. Uh, Yeah, not much to it. I mean, especially compared to what we've talked about before, the Spider-Man story being such a just actual Spider-Man story, but even the the Nick Fury story we talked about with Andy, like that too is a little more focused on the holiday, I guess, but, but it also has a very clear sort of emotional through line and and feeling of stakes whereas this is just sort of a goofy throwaway yeah speaking of goofy throwaways Uh, (laughs) i know where this is going Uh, (laughs) it's time for the captain ultra story (laughs) (laughs) oh boy (laughs) yeah so that means that we're looking at the story mud pie which is Written by Scott Lobdell, drawn and inked by Dennis Jensen, colors by Tom Vincent, letters by Dan McKinnon, and once again, the editor is Renee Wittstatter. Witterstatter, sorry. And Griffin Gogol, what a name, has arrived at the comedy club where he is supposed to perform in, ba- in, in, uh, no, in Wash Basin, Texas. And evidently, the club is closed. It's boarded up. And so Griffin calls his agent, and the agent says, Didn't my people tell you that the gig was nixed? Something about missing townspeople. And Griffin is freaking out because he needs the money. That basically, he is living tour date to tour date, barely funding his travels. And so, for now, Griffin is stuck in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. in the rain on Christmas, I guess, because I guess this is Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, it's Christmas. And just then Griff remembers that he's a superhero and he can become Captain Ultra and find the missing townspeople and then he can perform his gig. Yeah. So he becomes Captain Ultra 
with one of the most garish costumes ever. And just then, a hand made of swampy muck and sewage reaches up from the ground and grabs him and slams him to the pavement. It pulls him down into the creature's lair, and the creature reveals himself to be Mud Pie. That's M-U-D-P-I, who is quite eloquent for a mud monster. He has a carrot for a nose and little tufts of, of leaves making kind of a fringe of hair around his temples, and basically they just commiserate for a while. Mud Pie is complaining about the noise that people make, and Griff self-deprecatingly says that Mud Pie should come to one of his comedy shows. He has the quietest audiences around. And Mud Pie says that he just wants peace and quiet and a break from all the noise, which is why he's decided to flush all of humanity down his bowl of death. Um, turns out that Mud Pie has the citizens of Wash Basin held captive in his cavernous lair, and that's when Griffin gets mad, because... Mud Pie stole his audience. And so Captain Ultra attacks, and the fight continues. Griff basically just throws himself at the creature over and over again, slamming into him and through him, and using his intangibility to get out of the way. And he borrows the town people's clothes and uses them to absorb all of the moisture from the muck monster, reducing him to a tiny, scrawny creature that Griff can then push into the bowl of death. And Griff gets the townspeople back to the center of town. They're all still in their underpants because they gave their clothes to the hero. And victorious, he celebrates as the town cheers for Wonder Man. <sighs> yep. Captain Ultra. Yep. So this guy was originally created as a joke character in a Roy Thomas Fantastic Four issue from 1970. He basically tries out for the Frightful Four, and they're really excited, Wizard, Trapster, and Sandman trying to get their fourth member. And they're really excited at first because of all of his powers, because as James and I were talking before all of you got here, Captain Ultra is, is kind of a, a knockoff of Silver Age Martian Manhunter. He's got super strength and flight and supervision and intangibility, but he's also originally terrified of fire. And so one of the members of the fright, <laughs> right? <laughs> one one of the members of the frightful four strikes a match to, to like light a, a cigarette or something, mm -hmm. and the the sight of the flame causes Captain Ultra to faint. And so that was sort of not the best first impression for a character in the Marvel universe. <laughs> No. And it sort of went downhill from there. He was a defender for a day, I think. And and I don't know. He joined later on. He was in the initiative. When Wonder Man kind of went crazy and attacked the Avengers, he was on Wonder Man's team. I mean, defender for a day. Is that really an accomplishment? I'm pretty sure Make-A-Wish kids, are let they let them be a defenders for a day. <laughs> Who hasn't been a defender for a day at this point? Me. Oh, <laughs> you, you didn't get the call, huh? You told me you were out Christmas shopping. <laughs> I mean, so I was technically with the with the defenders, but like it wasn't any of the good lineups. What, what, wait, what's the good lineup of the defenders? <laughs> I mean, the classic one: Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer, Hulk, Namor, Howard the Duck. I mean, I wouldn't object to Howard the Duck there. 
I don't know what he brings to the the equation, but wow! <laughs> just this this whole this is the least this is the least Christmassy one we've looked at so far. Yes, like literally, there is a caption box saying it's Christmas, and that's the only thing that makes it Christmassy. To which leads me to believe it was not actually a Christmas story. Right, right. This feels like it was meant to go in some other book. Yes, probably Marvel presents, which yeah, had had yeah. had Ultra stories in before. But you're like, oh, we need something. This is the right length. Add a caption box there, and boom, it's a Christmas story. Because otherwise, I would have expected, like, if this was written to be a Christmas story Mm -hmm. and intended to be a Christmas story, I'd have expected the mud monster to look more like a Christmas tree. Or a snowman. He has a carrot nose. Right. He does have a carrot nose. Like, that. that's the third, yeah. Which? More could have been done with the visuals to make this Christmassy. So this is this character's first and only appearance. Sure. The mud pie guy, um, which probably for the best. He, he looks like a Man-Thing ripoff. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that he's supposed to be a parody of Man-Thing. Yeah. Because he, he looks kind of like, I don't know, middle-aged, like he's bald on top with the leaves around the back. Yeah. It's... Uh... Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have much for this one. It's kind of a low point of this book so far. It's disappointing. Definitely. And I just, I don't like Captain Ultra. He's obnoxious. He he really is. And, uh, like, there are better joke superheroes out there. Yeah. Just, uh. Like, honestly, if, if this was a D-Man story, I would be happier. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Did we get a D-Man story in the last one, or was it another Captain Ultra? Uh, I don't remember if we had either. That was the 91 one, right? Yeah. 91, we had X-Men, Fantastic Four, Punisher, Thor, Captain America, Ghost Rider. There was a Captain Ultra. Captain Ultra, okay. He fought Plant Man. Gotcha. Which, what is it with Captain Ultra and, and like, vegetation-based villains? Eh, I mean, intelligence-wise, the guy's basically a vegetable. <laughs> but yeah, and and then thanks right I'm after here all this, night, waitresses. It's funnier than anything Griffin Google said in the story. There you go. He doesn't have a tight, um, tight set. No. <clears throat> um, after that, we have another nice pinup with Wolverine and a bunch of elves, I guess. Yeah, elves like John Byrne elves. It's what it looks like. So we- like, it looks a bit like Santa when he appeared in She-Hulk. Right, it's sort of a cross between that and the the leprechauns from Claremont X-Men. Yeah, they're ripping a cigar out of Wolverine's mouth. It's it's weird. Oh, hey, it's our pal Sean McGinnis, who does all that great kaiju art. Sean, what, what do you think of this weird Wolverine pinup? I'm looking at that right now. I'm trying to figure out what the hell is going on, because those don't look like elves. They look like miniature Santas. Right. It's almost like the the movie Rare Exports with with the the little bearded men that are at first they think it's a Santa but it's really elves. I feel like it should be part of a one of those VHS tapes from the eighties, like Puppet Master, where everything's got practical <laughs> effects and it's got really bad uh-huh. quality. That's what I kind of feel like it is. Especially that one creepy guy like peering out from inside the tree. Yeah. Okay. I just noticed that. See, I've been more on. <laughs> Them snapping his cigar, and I'm figuring out, okay, what's... It's it's such a confusing thing. 
but you can you can tell who's the artist for hire and who's basically got some passion behind it in, in books like this. And I'm not going to knock artistic talent, but you can tell when they're, I'd really rather not be working on this. Like, what's Wolverine doing here? Is he delivering right, presents? He's, he's got presents. He's near a tree. He doesn't seem to be going toward the tree. Right. Yeah. And then the, and the, the elves or Santas or whatever they are, have they're coming in through the window for some reason. And I clearly see footprints. Are those Wolverine's footprints? Are <laughs> they the, the elf footprints? Why are elves leaving footprints? I don't know. I'm asking way too many questions about this stupid picture. <laughs> yes. And I shouldn't be. I should be. I should just live in the moment. I should follow my own advice. Just live in the moment. I think what they're trying to imply is that the elves are admonishing Wolverine for smoking because it's naughty. I I, I can see that. Because of it killing people. (laughs) Well, okay. You'll notice, and I don't know if you've looked at the later pinup, in all of Wolverine's appearances in this book, he is not deploying his claws in any of them. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. You know, I, he is a non-violent you know, Wolverine. Okay. Yeah, sort of like how the, the next Wolverine appearance is sort of like a sequel to that. Mm-hmm. I just noticed that. Yeah. I huh. don't know if that was intentional. I think they just wanted as many pictures of Wolverine in this book as they could get. What year yeah. did this come out in? 1993. Okay. Which so is why they would here. want as many pictures of Wolverine as they could. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a special... It was a special decade. Yeah. I, I lived through it. I remember it. I remember it well, uh, especially when it comes to Ghost Rider, because they, you could just tell we've got this hot property. We don't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Ghost Rider, our next story is a Ghost Rider story. It's Harvey P. Biscuit's Yule Log. That's right. right. Written by Anne Nishenti, art by Tom Grindenberg, inks by Bob Almond. Brad Joyce is the letterer, Joe Rosas is the colorist, and of course, as with the others, Renee Witterstatter is the editor. And Sean, why don't you give us a summary? (laughs) What I find very interesting in this is that without knowing, if you just gave me the first two panels, I would think this was a Vertigo comp, because the Mm -hmm. artwork is super flat, very heavily inked, very heavily colored, like there's not a whole lot of variety of color. You've got this guy who's obviously had a nightmare. The alarm clock's about to wake him up. And you can just tell he is not looking forward to getting up. It is Life is horror to him. Life is suffering. He gets up and we move from a blue palette to a very bright palette. And you basically got this milk toast, poor, sad sack of a guy who's having to take care of his, and here we go with this trope. It's a, a, a morbidly obese, abusive mother, cannot stand her son. Oh, I, I hope you don't die because who's going to take care of me? But whoever does take care of me, they must have to do better than you because you're just miserable. Go out to your job. You're never going to find anyone. And it's just abuse and abuse. I keep on expecting Constantine to walk in from off camera. <laughs> we get to the next panel and you can just tell she's becoming more monstrous. She's becoming more deformed. And in this just out of left field, out of a uh, nine panel shot, in the seventh panel, he just hits her with something. I can't tell why. I guess it's his umbrella. Knocks her head off and looks down at her corpse. And then you realize, oh, yeah, he's just daydreaming about this. Oh, okay. I get I get where we're going with this. It's abuse. He's imagining things. So he's going to work, and he's just imagining, hey, I could jump out into traffic. That'll be nice. And you see him jump out into traffic. And he just looks down at his body. He's like, oh, dear. I guess I better wait. 
And then who should come down the street? It's vengeance. The ghost rider, the blood of the innocent has been spilled away. And he's chasing down some punk who, as near as I can tell, has a Christmas garland and lights <laughs> around his motorcycle. And of course, he's got, Ghost Rider's got the same Trump vocabulary of like about six words, vengeance, the I am the spirit of vengeance, the blood of the innocent has been spilled, and Danny Ketch is just going to town. I don't know in this particular year, my memory's kind of fuzzy, if Ketch was more in control or if he was just taking backseat to the Ghost Rider. So as the Ghost Rider's chasing this guy down, he turns and looks dead at our little milk toast RVT biscuits. And the poor guy goes to work just wondering, why did he look at me? Why did he turn to look at me? And he goes he goes through this absolute hell of a maze of cubicles where he's the only one there. And his boss is telling him, you know, due to cutbacks and we're not earning all that much money, you gotta stay here for Christmas. And you know, I'll be leaving, of course. And you know, he's just he's he's just sucking it up. Not only is he having to suck up being walked all over by his boss, who, by the way, has this magnificent mullet and receding hairline. <laughs> like he looks like Gene Simmons really overweight so he's just sucking it up and wondering why did vengeance stare at me i'm gonna have to stay here at work why was vengeance staring at me and the word just keeps turning over and over in his mind so for some ungodly reason and i love this about marvel ghost rider shows up at his job and says <laughs> brah brah i'm sorry didn't mean to scare you you didn't deserve my penance stare and not that he gave him the penance stare, but he, he obviously knows he shook him up so Ghost Rider came all the way. We don't know what happened to the guy he was chasing, but he came all the way back just to apologize to Harvey Milktoast here. And they are just, it's, it's recycled art, one panel after the other for a solid six panels. While Ghost Rider just you basically goes, hey man, I'm really sorry. Hey, look, is there something I can do for you? Can I make your day a little bit better? Is this a place of your work? Does your employer treat you well? And like, this is so out of character for Ghost Rider, but I am loving it. I would love to see more of like, hey, you know, it was rude of me to drive by you so fast. You know, can I take you to work? I would love to see more of that. So he goes to his boss, puts him on his shoulder, and in turn, says, I am the spirit of vengeance. How do you treat your employees? Doesn't even have to <laughs> use his pants there. Doesn't have to glower. He is literally just asking this dope, how do you treat your employees? The guy sings like a canary. I've been skimming off the top. I've been taking vacation. I'll tell you what, I will do better. Ghost Rider doesn't even twist his finger. Doesn't even pinch his ear. He just stands there and he, the boss gets down on his knees with a little halo over his head and Ghost Rider says, change your ways or else I'll be back. It is glorious. All flat colors, very messy art, but it's perfect for this sort of vertigo with the numbers filing with the numbers filed off on it good it's done <laughs> goodbye harvey t biscuit now i don't remember if he actually said his name but obviously the spirit of vengeance is very good with personal details but he's like, oh wait 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 i'd be honored if you would be my friend and uh, stop by for christmas and he gives the ghost rider his business card boom ghost rider's <laughs> off so now the boss comes running out and starts shoving money into harvey's hands all the money is brown I cannot tell you why it's brown. This is an obvious artistic choice. It's very obvious what it is, but the boss is giving Harvey a raise and the money is brown. Not green, it's brown. Doesn't matter. We're moving on. Chocolate money? 
It's chocolate money. That's not pretty damn good, but it's pretty flimsy. So obviously, Harry and Mom are at home, and she's just laying into him. Still, just you're worthless, blah blah blah. And of course, ding dong. Oh yeah, I invited a friend over for a drink, Mother. Oh Harry, my baby, how wonderful! A friend. She waddles to the door. Ghost Rider's staying there. He actually starts singing. A Christmas Carol, fa la la, and that's it. They they've run out of the budget for the number of pages for this, and Harvey's just sitting there smiling. We don't know what he did to this poor woman, but he's sitting there in full hellish regalia, singing a Christmas Carol. God bless you, Marvel. God bless you for this messy, stupid comic. It's like we're talking about with Godzilla. This is a ghostwriter for all seasons, a ghostwriter of all flavors. You want ghostwriters spitting out vengeance? Sorry, buddy, you got to go back to the main comic. We are here for out and out vertigo numbers filed off cheese. And that's what this is about. It is ghostwriter cheese and corn, and I'm here for the escada. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the, the style being sort of vertigo. Like, I agree with you a lot. It, looking at the the artist's uh, background in the mid to late '80s, he did a bunch of 2000 AD. Oh yes, yes. I mean, if you took the Ghost Rider out of this completely, this could have easily fit into like a Sandman side story. Yeah. Uh, honestly, as a matter of fact, if you took out Ghost Rider and put in maybe not Dream, but one of the Endless, who just had a lot of, like wanders around. He was just sort of kind of like lost and just sort of kind of wanders into my panel. This story still works. You could almost do this with death. It would be, there would be less threat of violence directly, but you could do it with death of the endless and it would still kind of work. Right. Or, you know, you know what? Envy. Yeah. Because he would be envious of, I am envious of other people who have better mothers. I am envious of people who have a better job. I'm envious of people who don't have to suffer like I do. You can just say, see, envious her. you know, I don't normally do this. You know, let me, let me help you out, brother. And this, again, this is so out of character for Ghost Rider because Catch would never turn around and feel, and, and go talk to them in Ghost Rider form. This is a typical Ghost Rider. I am completely unaware of how horrifying I look. I'm going to go back and make things better. I'm going to show up at someone's Christmas part house for a drink. It's glorious. <laughs> glorious. I got to say, it, it it is the most fun story in the Christmas, in my opinion, in the Christmas tree. Spoiler for our coverage of the Hulk, Hulk story later. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Like, it's just, it's zany. It, that sort of zany, zany. But it's also very much, so a thing that we don't, think about or at least a lot seems like people don't think about very much is that ghost stories at christmas time is a really traditional thing i i miss that completely i feel stupid i miss that completely he's a christmas ghost yeah oh that's that's like morality stories with ghosts showing up is so much a christmas thing it is like those time life books where you go and get the, you know, granted, I was always into the black time life books of myths and legends, the horror and the ghost stories. But there was one for Christmas that I never really went through and I wish that I had. But that sort of thing would fit right in here with this. Sure. Yeah. And, and you know, and of course, A Christmas Carol is the classic one. But but there's lots of others. For years, British television on Christmas would broadcast a ghost story because, it's what you do. And so I just, very, I love that Marvel is doing their version of that with the spirit of vengeance. 
and it feels very British. Like, granted, it obviously takes place in America, but they could have mm-hmm. easily just ported it over. Ghost Rider, you know, goes all over the place. You know, he could just be. Oh, they could have easily made the motorcycle that he's chasing after a punk. You know, a mm-hmm. standard British archetype punk. And you know, this has a lot of tropes going on into it. It's cruel, but it's just so that you know, it has that British cruelty in it where there's no mm-hmm. point to the story. There's no moral. It's like the end of Time Bandits. You know, it's just supposed to leave you depressed. <laughs> and in, in this one, the only thing that sort of pulls you back from that is that one little panel of Harvey smiling as he sips his tea. Right. And, it, and it's sort of like he's, he's got a little smug, self-satisfied sort of thing. You know, what, what happens after this? You don't got to think about it. It doesn't matter. What's fun, what, mm-hmm. All that matters is what leads up to that. You know, yeah. one criticism I have is page 48, where they take Harvey's shocked face and they repeat it a, yeah. a minimum of one. OK, we got the original one, two, three on page 48. They copy it on two more times on page 49. And the ghostwriter face doesn't change in the three times that it's on page yeah. 48. It's yeah, little, half the page is copy pasted. Right. But you know what? I do that sort of thing, too. Like if I'm doing a webcomic. And I don't want to reshoot something. I'll go back and look at some of my Photoshop files and see what I can lift out without having to go the two feet over to my light table and pick up the same figure that I just put down and reshoot it and then replug it into my computer. Well, what I just noticed, not- it's not even the, the, the Harvey close up is actually copy and pasted from the panel at the top, the larger panel. Right, right. Like, it it, it from came there. from there. Yeah. So it appears four times on one page. Yeah, and then it's two more times on the other page, and they just do a tighter close-up. Yeah. I'm still trying Which, to figure out, what is that red stuff on the back of his boss's jacket? Like, where, where yeah. it's just tap-tap. It looks like a little bit of blood. Then you go right. to where he's on his knees, and it looks like is his hair dyed red at the end. And then Maybe. Where Ghost Rider's got his hands almost around his neck, and there's a little bit of red there. Uh-huh. I can't figure out what that is. I, I, wonder if it's, I wonder if it's supposed to be a design on his vest. Because there's is also the some red. Supposed to be. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I... No, go ahead. You're because this is completely oh, different. Just, plot. In, in the the panel where he's giving Harvey the money, there's also some red, red detailing on on the front of him. Oh, let me see here. There's a yeah. We don't see him from the front. I don't know. It may have been something where the artist drew it and didn't tell the inker or the colorist what right. it was supposed to be. So they just said, "Okay, there's supposed to be red hair." I don't know because it's not blood. Right. It's not. It looks like his hair in the second time we ever see him on the floor, on the floor, moving from the Ghost Rider. But we don't see it in the next panel over. And then you see it just under Ghost Rider's figure. So maybe it's supposed to be like, you know how Conan's hair is not blue? They just use a little bit of blue so that his hair is not completely black. Maybe it's something like that. Trying to make it not blend into his clothing so much because he's wearing dark colors. Right. So Ghost Rider's fingers don't blend in. It maybe maybe it's supposed to be a you know what I'll bet it's supposed to be a light reflection of Ghost Rider's flames. You can see that that makes so, a lot of sense. Yeah. Is the boss home. supposed to be Dan DeVito? He got, he has looks he does look a little bit of it's always sunny in Philadelphia, just like with long hair. Yeah, he, he's yeah. a bit like Taxi area era Dan DeVito. I yeah, can see I that. Get, I get that too. Because I mean, he's very short. Like when you see him running out underneath the sub sign, you see him basically is <laughs> even shorter than. Tea biscuits. Right. Harvey sort of towers over him. And the thing I love about this comic the most is just Ghost Rider singing Fa La La. There's <laughs> yeah. no setup for that. 
does, is he using his vengeance powers to realize that this woman is abusing him and he can just use a little bit of scare tactics on her? Doesn't matter. It's stupid. It's funny. I'm here for it. No It's judgment. a great punchline. <laughs> but yeah. I, I really no, like I, the I, whole idea that you brought up a Christmas ghost stories. I remember when you came to my bar and we were talking about the, the ghostwriter saving that little blind girl. And I didn't mm -hmm. even, we didn't even think about it then. There's, you know, it's another morality. Right. Well, not really so much morality as ghostwriter power fulfillment. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And in and, and that one, he's mistaken for Santa Claus. Yeah. And, but I, and I love what they even did it too because the little girl says, oh, boots. They're Santa's boots. You know, yeah. boy, your reindeer <laughs> sure is noisy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, I, I like the, the ways that they're figuring out how to fit Ghost Rider into these holiday specials. It's, it's fun. Because it's perfect that he doesn't fit. All the other heroes, right. you can have them doing like, oh, i, I got to get these presents delivered or i got to go save an orphan. Ghost Rider does not belong in Christmas, right. which is why he belongs <laughs> at Christmas. Yep. <laughs> it's great. We need Godzilla Christmas stories. We need a Christmas Godzilla movie. Yes. I have a Christmas Godzilla sweater. I've oh, that's seen great. Those. They're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I never wear them. Um, I, I did see, I think there's a Godzilla Valentine special comic coming out this year or next yeah. year. Yeah. Everyone's really looking uh, forward to that one. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, they, they should do just seasonal Godzilla issues like that. <laughs> we need, guys, we need Valentine's Ghost Rider. I would read it. <laughs> I mean, Marvel like, does a Valentine's Day special. They, they usually do a, just a big anthology book. I didn't get this year, so I don't know if any of the monster or horror characters were in it. But right. mm -hmm. but it would be cool if it, if they did that. Yeah. And you know, again, I love Ghost Rider to death, guys. Uh, I've got the gas cap of vengeance tattooed on my leg. I love Ghost Rider. He's a stupid character because no one knows what to do with him. He doesn't fit in your Marvel superhero power fantasy because he's a creature from hell. You can't really, you know, have him stop bank robberies because he's a spirit of vengeance. You know, he's the not the Avenger, not the Prevenger. He's the Revenger. And, right. you know, he, he doesn't fit in most superhero stuff. But that was, is what makes him so good is that he'll show up and be like, oh, Jesus Christ, Ghost Rider. Guys, we got to protect the villains. Yeah, and that's the so the the thing, especially at this time in the early '90s, that came closest was when they would occasionally try to to team him up with Punisher, and that almost works. Except, mm -hmm. really, you can only tell that story once because at the end of it, Ghost Rider should also take out Punisher. Right, and I I love me some Punisher. He's a very problematic character. Yep. Realistically, <laughs> realistically, he would be a villain because for someone yep. as traumatized as Frank Castle, he would be killing as many innocents as he would gangsters. You know, there are plenty of other people who do the, oh, I'm going to go and pick out the gangsters sort of hero vibe. You know, you got your daredevils. Frank Castle is the one who would be, well, some innocents got blown up. Not really my problem. I'm taking out the greater evil. Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of glad he doesn't do that. I, and I really wish that I could tell why I, I like that character because he's the antithesis of everything about me. He's vengeance he's guns he's basically the you know what the second amendment chuds gravitate towards to and he would have hated cops and so every cop has to have his sticker on their car which i think is completely inappropriate but you know there's just something about that character that i like reading about when it's done well i mean especially the the garth ennis stuff mm. yeah the the treat that sort of almost 
pulling him a little further out of the main Marvel universe actually helps that character a little bit because then there's not the expectation that he team up with Spider-Man or Captain America or whatever, that he can just be his own person. Cap would, it doesn't matter what the situation would be. Cap would beat the tar out of him on site. I I always liked, I always liked the, I'm not a big fan of the civil war comic book event, but there are a couple of moments in it that I really like. And one is when Punisher joins Captain America's side and yeah. Cap basically says, okay, you get one strike. And as soon as you mm-hmm. slip up, you're out. And and a villain dies by accident on one of Punisher's missions, and he's just no, no, out. No, no. It, he, two villains showed up. Because oh, that's right. Like, he has hey, look, to take them out. Yeah. He, he took them out because they were going to join because, like, hey, look, we're villains, but this law affects us too, so we're willing to help. And mm-hmm. Punisher doesn't give him a warning. He guns him down right. full clip. Right. And right. he stares at him. Cap unloads on him, and he basically says, yep. but Cap, they were rapists and thieves. And yep. Cap says, I was an idiot. I was an idiot for thinking we could do anything. And he just looks at yep. him as, as the mad dog that he's always been. Yeah. Yep. You're right. That's but, – but yeah, that's – I always liked that moment. There's a similar moment where both Cap and Iron Man separately go to Moon Knight and tell him to just stay the hell out of everything, that neither side yeah. wants him. Yeah. Um, Which is great. Yeah. I mean, I did not. I was never a Moon Knight fan until he came into the MCU, and then I started seeing all these memes and stories about him. And people would post their mm-hmm. favorite stories, and I was like, you know what? I got a greater appreciation for this guy. He's a he's a fun character. That that 2003 run that happened sort of around Civil War is very good. The later stuff that started with Warren Ellis is good. I, I'm I even like you go back to the the 80s. The stuff that Doug Minch and Bill Sienkiewicz were doing is a lot of fun. Yeah, he was just one of those guys who never turned up on my radar, and I'm really glad that I managed to like catch just a couple things here and there. Even though I don't even really read comic books anymore, I like entering the discourse and I like seeing people talk about what they like. And then, like I mentioned earlier, we then have a, another Wolverine pinup. This this story yeah. is kind of like a Wolverine Ghost Rider sandwich. Because <laughs> there are oh, these man. two Wolverine pinups surrounding probably the most '90s character in this book. Yeah. Find me the bed that can hold that action. It is it is a very '90s meal right there. Yeah. Especially now this the, the second pinup is much more traditionally Christmas superhero pinup. Action yeah. pose, Santa in the background, lots of snow. And those yeah. boots, those big wingtip yep. boots right around the knees where he, that he should, yep. like, I really would love to see someone, I have never seen anyone do a full Wolverine costume where they have those ridiculous boots like they used to have. I, I want to see someone put pull that off and see if they can actually walk around in them. <laughs> that would be funny. I don't but think I've ever seen anyone with those either. I've seen, like, the, the pirate-style boots for, like, Captain yeah. America cosplays, but, oh, but man, never the, the big boots. pointy ones. Yeah. You know, I love the ones where it's got the top folded over, and it's just – it's such an 80s <laughs> Silver Age sort of thing. I kind of miss yeah. those costumes. Yeah. I'm looking now to see if anybody's done it. Kind of, but they're definitely more subdued. Yeah, more subdued. Yeah, this was when Wolverine was in his yellow and blue – or technically yellow and black. Because, you know, it's one of those comic book things. It looks blue like Conan's hair. Oh, but they put a little, Oh, they did. Oh, that's Here, nice. I'll, I'll send it to you. Oh, my God. It's so insane. I'll you too, Trey. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. Man, you actually got the teeth right, too. 
Yeah. yeah. That's a that's a good one. A lot of I was at Dragon Con this past summer and what Wolverines I saw were primarily more subdued versions of the outfit than that. I didn't see a lot of yellow and blue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you I, I, I saw some out. old man Logans and, and some sort of post 2000s looks, but old man Logan was basically closet cosplay. It's like, let me get a wife beater. Mm-hmm. Let me get some beat up pants. Let me not shave for a couple of days. Yeah. But when Maybe a jacket with some fur out, around the collar. When you, that Deadpool movie comes out, you're going to be counting Wolverines. Like you're the, 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 oh, yeah. the, the what we've seen in previews is pretty spectacular. Yeah. I'm I'm excited to see a live action Wolverine that looks like the comics version for really the first time. Yeah, because we've never really gotten that. We've gotten the black leather, yeah. and it's always been it's either been black leather or plain clothes. Yeah, they they teased us with it at the end of the Wolverine with mm-hmm. showing the costume in the case, like the the brown right. costume, mm-hmm. but uh, but never saw never saw Jackman actually put it on. No, and it's it's one of the things where. You know, I've been, God rest his soul, I'll talk with Howard about this a lot. The only reason people wear costumes is two reasons. One, they want to use that hackneyed thing as they want to be a symbol. I don't really see a lot of superheroes doing it as a thing of self-expression, but we always said people wear costumes so they can tell each other apart. Like, imagine if the Masters of Evil rolled up on the Avengers when they were down the street and the Masters of Evil weren't wearing their costumes. Imagine the absolute chaos. They're like, okay, who am I fighting? What's their powers? I got no clue what I what to, what to do. Yeah, I think that would be an absolute just, they, you could even call it the blind side event, you know, where they are just blindsided by getting attacked by these plain clothes guys. And of course, some of them like the rhino aren't exactly going to be able to pull that off. So you leave them out. But imagine yeah. the majority of the Thunderbolts wailing on the Avengers in plain clothes or even wearing costumes that have nothing to do with their powers. Yeah. Well, because that was an even, I mean, not quite that, but the original Thunderbolts gimmick was that they all changed their identities so that people thought they were superheroes. Right. But to go even farther is to get like a full like round of action, you know, where they automatically get initiative and just jump them because they don't realize, oh, no one's giving a speech. No one's saying we are the masters of evil and we are here to defeat you. They just all of a sudden just jump them right in the street, during a parade, something like that, and they're not wearing their costume. Yeah, yeah. It's something you can only pull off once. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. But it even sort of reminds me a little bit of uh, every so often, like I know it happened once in the early 2000s, when Batman and Superman would trade places and yeah. exchange mm-hmm. costumes. And, and, and so you get the sort of shock moment of Batman suddenly having superpowers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking that, yeah. Or, you know, Batman, like, bends a bar. Mm-hmm. And, that that one know. really great episode of the animated series where Superman goes out on patrol as Batman with Robin so that no one knows Bruce is missing. Well, I remember that. Yeah, good stuff. Really good stuff. The blood of the innocent has been spilled, but it's also Christmas time. Lo, Saturnalia, I am off to avenge the innocent. Oh, make sure you take some eggnog. I will now drive into my hell. Hell, I, I don't have a hell cycle. I have a. I have a hell Kia. A hell Kia soul. Hell Kia soul. <laughs> the damned. And and there he goes. Yeah. Hold on. And and it is leaving a fire trail. This isn't the blood of the innocent. This is the cranberry oh. juice of the innocent. Ah, I like cranberry. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Hey 
Hey everybody, Michael Bailey here with a trailer announcing the return of It All Comes Back to Superman. Well, sort of the return of It All Comes Back to Superman. Desperate to stay relevant and chase those sweet, sweet podcasting dollars, I've decided that since all of the shows on the Fortress of Bailitude podcasting network are moving to a new hosting platform, that I would start It All Comes Back to Superman over with a new number one and name. So really, this is a trailer for the sort of new, pretty much the same as before, It All Comes Back to Superman Series 2. It All Comes Back to Superman Series 2 will be... It's gonna be... Oh, God. Are you hearing this music that's playing right now? In all honesty, I chose it because I thought it had a good trailer feel. But the more I'm sitting here listening to it, the more it sounds like something... You know what it sounds like? It sounds like something you would hear in the background of a motivational video your job made you watch that is full of corporate jargon and buzzwords and useless affirmations trying to convince you that working there is some freaking higher calling. Or, you know, you know what else it sounds like? It sounds like it would be behind an ad on YouTube that is trying to sell you something that is supposedly life-altering but in reality is at best useless and at worst dangerous and probably should be illegal. Yeah, you know what? You know what? I'm done. I'm done with this music. Yeah, it's 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 over. I'm just going to go with the music I've licensed for the show. I, I should have just done that from the beginning. <sighs> there. That's better. Anyway, it all comes back to Superman Series 2 will be pretty much like the first series, just with a convenient new numbering system. Episodes will be erratic at first, because it's me, but hopefully by the end of 2024 they should be released on a regular basis. Some episodes will be one-and-dones. Some will be part of rolling series with names like The Earth 2 Superman Files, and Close Maketh the Villain, the superpowered makeovers of Lex Luthor and Brainiac. There might even be holiday specials every once in a while, as well as episodes from the previous feed making their way over to the new one, just to kind of freshen them up a bit. No matter the subject, movies, comics, action figures, prose, the show will be all about my love and fandom for the greatest fictional character ever created. It all comes back to Superman Series 2. Part of the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. Available through Libsyn on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and other podcatching platforms. Show notes and other bits and bobs will still be available on posts over at www.fortressofbailitude.com. and smash and crash figures. You'll never get out of my gamma ray trap. Watch my bubbling brains. Oh, smash gamma trap. Arr! My vibrating energy field will stun the Hulk into my steel body trap. Attach the super density bomb braces. Lower the neck harness. Activate timer. Oh, smash. Rawr! Break up playsets. Come with Hulk. Smash and crash figures eat so separately. Well, that was fun. That was fun. Yes. Yeah. Hey, you know, you know, we've got a Hulk story here. Oh, what? 
So this is what mid early nineties. It's Peter David. I like Peter David. But you know who loves Hulk stories? Peter David. Okay, yeah, probably Peter David, but like he, <laughs> he 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 declined our invitation. Right, but, right. You know, Michael Bailey's right there. Oh, Michael Bailey likes the yeah. Hulk. Hi, Michael. Hey, Michael. Yeah, come it, here. It, is Andy gone? <laughs> yeah, he, he he has run in search of whiskey. So I think you're good. Okay, well, yeah, that's not surprising. Sorry, <laughs> due to the due to the ongoing arbitration, we're not exa- allowed to be within 500 feet of each other. So I was kind of nervous coming here, anyways. But no, no, thank you for inviting me to the party. And th- and yes, I love the Hulk. The Hulk is my absolute favorite Marvel character. He is tied with Batman uh, for being like my second favorite character of all time. I can't choose between the two, so I refuse to. And my favorite run is the Peter David run. So this 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 ticks a lot of boxes. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the story Free Will? Well, Free Will is a very brief story. I was actually kind of surprised at how short. And then I re- remembered, oh, yeah, this is an anthology book. These aren't going to be like 22 pagers. But basically, while leaping around Devil Satan's Ridge, excuse me, the Incredible Hulk, Bruce Banner... In what has now become known as the professor persona, I have philosophical objections to that. But we're just going to go with, at the time of publication, this is how Bruce Banner was. He was a merged Hulk. He was in a giant green body with the mind of Bruce Banner, leading a group called the Pantheon. And one of the Pantheon agents is on the edge of the ridge and looks like he's about to jump. And we basically find out that this guy worked for the Pantheon. He had a wife. He had a kid. They went to visit her parents and died in a car accident. And he's basically at the end of his rope. He doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. He wants to end it all. He runs into Delphi, who is the Pantheon's... I don't want to call her a muse, but basically she's the one that looks into the future. And she gave him some cryptic thing that made him think that he was going to die. And so the Hulk basically berates him for several pages for wanting to commit suicide and finally convinces him not to. But then there's an accident and they end up falling, but the Hulk saves him. And then the Hulk goes to talk to Delphi. He's like, hey, you know, you made this guy seem like he was going to die. And she's like, I was all cryptic. So that's not what happened. And then the Hulk sees like an image of him and Betty celebrating the holidays and the end. That's essentially it. Yeah. I mean, this certainly was a story. <laughs> it is. And I feel like I'm saying that a lot about a lot of these stories in this issue, in this, in this anthology. But it, it's I, sort of the, the nature of these like four to six page stories is mm-hmm. that they get in and out really quick. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think the weird thing is, is that you're, you're kind of going for an it's a wonderful life kind of vibe with somebody wanting to commit suicide around Christmas and somebody talking them out of that. But but instead of the Hulk, like using the Pantheon's technology to show this guy how he really needs to live his life because he's really worth something. He just sits there and yells at him. (laughs) Which, which is a very Hulk response to a problem. (laughs) He's just like, why are you trying to kill yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Blah, blah. Wham, wham. Your wife died, but you got, you got other things to live for. And it's just like, this isn't, you're not the one to do this, Bruce. You are a doctor, but as you said at the end of Iron Man 3, you're not that kind of doctor. So maybe 
Maybe you should have called Leonard Sampson in on this one. Right, Maybe. right. Which I, I think, given where this seems to fall, I think Sampson is actually with Betty at the time. You know, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, this is this is kind of a weird era for the Hulk. As I said, he, he Peter David's run on the Hulk lasted like 12 years, and it has 15 movements. It's kind of like a Jim Steinman song in that in that in that respect, where you know he you know he started out with the Gray Hulk. He was using the hand that he was dealt, but his ultimate goal was to get a merged Hulk. He was piggybacking off of something the previous writer, one of the previous writers, Bill Mantlo, had established that Bruce's background had abuse in it, and where he was horribly physically and mentally abused by his father. And so instead of saying, oh, he's somebody that just turns into a monster, it's like, no, this guy, at the time it was called multiple personality disorder. I think now it's known as dissociative identity disorder, if I'm correct. Yeah, that sounds uh, right. Unless something has changed within the last couple of years, which is entirely possible because... No, that's accurate. Uh, I teach psychology, so... Oh, there you go. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and so it's not so much that he turns into another person. They're just different altars that were created to deal with the abuse. And so we go through a period where he's gray. And then he, we go through a period where he's gray and living in Las Vegas. Then he leaves Las Vegas, not the Nicolas Cage sense, but in the <laughs> I'm just getting out of there sense. And bums around a little bit until Leonard Sampson finally merges him. And immediately after the merge from where he took the green Hulk, the gray Hulk and Bruce Banner and just made one personality out of that. I'm not sure how accurate scientifically that is, but you know, <laughs> it's comics. So we're just going to go for it. He was kidnapped by this group called the Pantheon, which is kind of like this peacekeeping organization that is kind of like shield, but really reports to no one. And this is deep. The story takes place deep, deep into the Pantheon. We're basically almost to the point where I think we're about a year or two away from this story, from that all falling apart and going into the next movement. So thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, no. So, uh, need a refill? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you very much. Yeah, I do need to wet my whistle. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess so at this point... If I'm remembering, it has been a very, very long time since I've read Peter David Hulk. But this is around the time Hulk is actually leading the Pantheon, maybe? Or is about to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's Agamemnon first, and then yes. he hands it over. Yeah. And that so that that's sort of why this guy treats Hulk as a superior officer, so to speak. Yeah, he was basically just like a, a scientific muscle for the team mm -hmm. until he started leading it. And his relationship with Betty wasn't terrible at this point but they were still going through kind of a shakedown from him being you know 90 pounds soaking wet to seven feet tall and like 350 pounds or probably heavier than that because it's the marvel universe and right. weights are uh, very specific if you believe <laughs> the official handbook of the marvel universe i just i just love this era so much i am not saying that this is the best example of the era but at the same time, this isn't part of the ongoing story. This is a this is a small story as part of a larger holiday collection. So it's got to be kind of judged those terms as well. Sure, and, and I, I do like the 
again, it does feel like a very Hulk way of problem solving to sort of call the guy's bluff. Mm-hmm. I'm also amused that the guy trying to kill himself is named Jenkins, considering <laughs> after Peter David quit, Joe Casey wrote the book, and then John Byrne did, and then Paul Jenkins took over and kind of <laughs> took that car out of the skid. <laughs> I, I will say also, just I, I like the art, which, I mean, it looks like a Hulk comic from the 90s, so it looks good. But I just always liked the way Hulk looked during that sort of combined personality era. And it's a little touch, but I like the belt with the H on it. I like it when superheroes look superhero-y, and Hulk always had sort of the least superheroic look. And so giving him just that little bit of branding is something I like. I I, I, I never liked the brown pants, yeah, they um, should be purple. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, that's what I was thinking. But Ron Lim did the artwork with inks by Bill Anderson, and I'm going to assume that the reason why this doesn't look as Ron Limmy is because of the inks. Because normally Ron Lim's like really solid, and the art isn't bad. It just, there are times where, well, on that first page, the Hulk's feet are odd. Yes, but, yeah. But that's kind of they're a not, hard perspective they're not to go quite, to. They're not quite Liefeld feet, but they're in the ballpark. No, if they were Liefeld feet, that it would be under that ridge uh, right. that he's <laughs> leaving by. So. Honestly, compared to some of the art in this in this anthology, this this artwork is amazing. I won't get into like you know which one I'm not talking about right now, but like it's it's good Ron Lim. It is mm. now. I, I agree with you that the inks. Or probably who who did the? It's Bill Anderson. Bill Anderson may not be the best inker for Ron Lim, but but it's it's fine. It's it does the job. Yeah. Now I came into Hulk when I was a young, but a young comics lad. I think the first issue of the Hulk I had was the big anniversary issue with a lady encased in holographic crystals. Is this sounding familiar? That would have been Hulk four hundred. Ah, yeah, that was my first issue. That's an odd first issue, man. <laughs> Is that one... There's a lot you got to know about, <laughs> like, like that's one that that is essentially seventy or so issues into Peter David's run. So <laughs> he's been on the book for a good like six years almost. Two, you have to know who Marlo is, <laughs> and and there's a lot of backstory there too. So I I feel like. I think that speaks, though, to that era where you can you can jump into something like that and it doesn't bother you. Right. Like, it was probably more exciting because it was an anniversary issue, so it probably had extras. Oh, yeah. And it was sparkly. It was really, really shiny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, you know, you I was know, seven. You know what? I think that was my first issue of Hulk 2. It had like, the, did it have holograms on the cover? Yeah, the crystals were holographic. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Podcast twinsies. <laughs> uh, I know I had that one. The only other issue of Hulk that really stands out from when I was younger, because I mostly read Hulk later, but when I was mm. a kid, it had to have been maybe ninety five, ninety six. There was a Hulk Hercules one shot. Mm-hmm. I think Peter David wrote that too. Maybe so it would have been sometime after this, but but it jumped between like Greek mythology Hercules and in the Marvel universe Hercules and Hulk. 
Yeah, that that was really that was also kind of around the time of God. The Hulk was in such a weird area in '95 and '96 because the book effectively was going to get canceled around the time of onslaught, and so right. he was kind of wrapping things up. And then they're like, "Nope, we're not canceling it." So you had like a Bruce Banner running around in Iron Man, and he became the Hulk in Heroes Reborn, and then you just had like Hulk Hulk without Bruce Banner, kind of wandering. Uh, wandering the earth with a character that was introduced around the time of the future and perfect storyline named Janice. And Mike Diodato is doing the artwork, which was really good artistically, a good time for the book. And then Adam Kubert came on and then Bruce came back. So there's like this year period where it's just kind of like the Hulk wandering around and he becomes, he gets involved with apocalypse and all that. So it's actually a really interesting time period has during that time period one of my favorite Peter David issues ever which is the 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 minus 1 issue that goes into mm. the death of Bruce's father which I won't spoil here. You know, I was trying to think of what what, what what my first issue of the Hulk was. I it's funny for being my favorite one of my favorite characters ever. I did not follow his comic book adventures until the 90s. I came on like 2 years before Peter David left and he it was actually one of my first big comic book collecting projects where I, I i was like i'm gonna get all of the peter david books boy those mcfarland books are were expensive <laughs> i bet <laughs> still are by the way just putting that out there in front street and but like through the years i was more of like a fan of the the tv series oh yeah and, oh, yeah and like every once in a while i would pick up an issue i i when i was a kid i had 293 which is the hulk fighting the thing on the cover I literally read that thing until it fell apart. And then I picked up just randomly. I, I, I think the universe was pushing me towards Superman a little bit because it was a burn Hulk issue, <laughs> which is right after he get, which is the issue where he gets separated from Bruce Banner during Burns first brief run. And then like every once in a while I would pick up an issue, but it really wasn't until What Savage Beast, which was the prose novel that Peter David wrote that was released in the fall of 1995 that I really started diving into his Hulk run. I love that book. It is the perfect Peter David Hulk story from start to finish. It is fantastic. I think you got me to read that back in the old Spider-Man Crawl Space message boards days. Ooh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I read that on your recommendation. Yeah, no, I, I cannot, like, it, it's available on Audible now. I, I just cannot recommend it enough. Because it, the great thing about it is that it's not only just a really good story on its own, but Peter David does this really cool thing of, it's kind of like what Roger Stern did with the Death and Life of Superman novel, where he brings you up to speed without it being clunky. Yeah, like everything like he, he allows to it to exist in the continuity in a way that, that doesn't feel forced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like he explains things, but it's not like, you know, to, you know, to, to quote The Lion King with Zazu, this is this and that is that. And this story in particular is very on point for the Hulk that existed around this time. Because this is a little bit before Future Imperfect, which is where the Hulk meets the Maestro, who is the character from What Savage Beast. And it's basically the future version of himself that is just malevolent. And after he comes back from that, he starts to have kind of a breakdown. 
because he's he's afraid that's where he's going to go. Mm-hmm. So here is where he's just he he's kind of a jerk. Oh yeah. But a little bit, a little bit. To my mind, this is like a Bruce Banner that's kind of at peace with himself for the first time and he's found a home and he's found a group to exist in and like a way to use not only his pure raw power but his scientific power as well his scientific knowledge to kind of better humanity through an outside force which makes perfect sense because this hulk wouldn't go anywhere near like shield or anything like that so so he in and this guy jenkins has like this really tragic backstory and instead of just sitting there and like talking to him he's just like you're an idiot <laughs> so michael how do, uh, just kind of a sidetrack i'm sorry how do you feel this professor hulk compares to the mcu professor hulk i i have nothing against the mcu professor hulk i have serious problems with the fact that all of the cool stuff with the hulk happened off off camera basically yeah um, yeah during the time jump yeah yeah Oh, and, and, you know, even going back further, like all of the really cool Planet Hulk, Gladiator Hulk stuff mm-hmm. was already done and dusted by the time we find him in Thor. And yeah, yeah. He's the character that suffered the most from another studio still retaining partial rights. And it, it, it you could have done a really cool, like, standalone Hulk movie and even like bring in Red Hulk and, 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 and all that during the blip. You know, if we're, if, if we're going to, I hate the blip just in general, like <laughs> time jumps. Overall, I think time jumps are kind of lazy. And what it did is what, what I thought it was going to do is what it's ultimately done, which is, man, they have like that five years is just an albatross story wise around their neck. You know, it's a millstone. And I, I think the Hulk it was cool seeing Professor Hulk. I love it. I have the the Funko Pop, and I I enjoyed seeing Ruffalo play that. I just wanted to see where we got to that point. Yeah, I I, I think the Hulk of all of the characters in the MCU, the Hulk is the one that's gotten screwed over the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of not allowing him to have his after that first movie, which I love, and I will die on that hill. Uh, I, I I'm a fan too. <laughs> Uh, I, I think after basically after Age of Ultron, it's all been kind of downhill until She-Hulk, and even then, you know, it was more about her, which is which is what I want because I don't yeah. want to see a She-Hulk show that is focusing on Bruce because that's unfair on a number of levels. But it's still, it's like a lot of cool stuff happened to him off camera. Well, and even way. like going to the secret lab he has, it's like the suggestions yeah. of all of the things he had done yeah. from. In Infinity War to that point that we just don't get to see. Yeah. Which, I, I mean, I love She-Hulk too. I think it's the official position of our podcast that we loved the She-Hulk series. Yes, it absolutely. Was what a, it was a, what a, it's what a She-Hulk series should have been. Mm-hmm. I don't get what people's problem was, except they we wanted another Marvel thing, big, big action-y thing, and like, that's never what She-Hulk was, man. Nah, Sorry. Nah. No, it exists uh, on its own. The, the big problem with Phase 4 is so many of the projects require you to have watched stuff. Whereas yeah. in phases one, two, and three, you didn't have to absolutely watch everything. There were big like milestone movies you would want to watch, but most of those were really good. 
And yeah. now it's just like, I haven't watched the Doctor Strange sequel because I haven't seen WandaVision yet. Yeah. And, and I feel like if I don't watch WandaVision, I'm going to be missing out on something in Doctor Strange I mean, too, so, so you as a fan of Marvel Comics would probably be fine, but <laughs> I completely understand that, that impulse to want to have seen the thing that you know ties into it. Yeah. And I would actually recommend, I, I believe you are a fan of older TV shows, like old sitcoms and stuff, right, Michael? Yeah. I would recommend it, it, WandaVision on that grounds. It it is it is a good thing to watch just on its own if you can ever find the time. Yeah. It's got Katherine Hahn in it, so I'm in just yep. in general. Yep. She she's yeah. a blank check with me. And I'll uh, literally and watch got, her in anything. It's got the mom from that seventies show. Like it's mm-hmm. got a lot of fun people in it. So Yeah. One thing just since sort of related to both story and the mcu talk someone the other day suggested eric bana should play the maestro and now i just really really want that (laughs) i don't know how i feel about that (laughs) (laughs) we don't have time to get into my thoughts on the 2003 hulk movie um (laughs) oh we'll have to have you back for that one of of Uh, which i have many and they're very very specific (laughs) and it, it, it like I know there are people that love that film, and I don't like to yuck anybody else's yum. But like, it, it, if I see someone like, well, you know, I like the two thousand one more than the two thousand eight one. I'm just like, okay, you are just as as my co-host who I can't be seen with in public apparently said it, it would say is a is a merciless assassin of fun. Oh, I, I will. I, I think the the that Hulk movie is an incredibly well made. And, and interestingly put together movie that is not the easiest thing to watch if you're a fan of the comic book character, the Hulk. <laughs> yes, it is made by somebody <laughs> that is trying to make the Hulk palatable to a wider audience that already found the character palatable. Right, right. Case in point, the very long running TV show and its three movie spinoffs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one of the movie spots, but still. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That Daredevil <laughs> one had John Reese davies though, and I like him. <laughs> yeah, but I, I tried watching that back in the summer, and it was, who is that rough? But if you're a next-gen fan and like the episode with like the, the, the kind of hot devil woman, yeah, she's in it. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you had a lot of that people. Though it's funny to think that, uh, that we didn't get the Daredevil series because of the John Wesley Ship Flash series, apparently. So really was that Rex, somebody IGN, I think did this really cool, like 30 minute video where they interviewed Rex Smith and Eric Allen Kramer and Elizabeth Grayson about the Hulk film. Cause it was kind of like the proto MCU sure. and Rex Smith from his perspective. And what he says he was told is that NBC heard about the flash series and they didn't want to have a superhero show to compete with that superhero show, so they just iced it. Now, that could have been just, like, they were looking for ever, any excuse to not do it. Sure. But, <laughs> but also, like, a lot, of, a lot of money was getting put into that Flash show, and it may have mm-hmm. been they were not prepared to put in that kind of money into a competitor. Yeah, it was like $1.7 million an episode in 1990. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That, that, was a, that was an expensive damn show. <laughs> And of course, in Incredible Hulk Returns, Thor is Little John from Robin Hood Men in Tights. Mm-hmm. And I, the I dad love this on Good Luck Charlie. 
which yep, my yep. wife liked to watch in every episode. I was like, it's Thor. Yep, 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 <laughs> me too. Me too. Like, oh crap, I think I think it's the Andy. Well, oh, guys, this has been fun. I don't want to get hit with a lawsuit because Andy's lawyers are much more litigious than mine. Do they wear wigs? Yeah, that, that's but the, not that's the, the source of their thing. power. <laughs> it's, it's 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 a whole thing. I can't really talk about it because of the non non disclosure agreements that I've signed. So, but guys, thank you so much for having me on. This was a fun story, and I'm glad we got to talk about other stuff. So, hopefully, yes. when my life calms down, we could actually do like a like a like a more thorough thing. Team up. Okay. Bye. Neighbors will call the cops on us. Yep, I think that makes the end of the party. Everyone get out while the getting's good. That's right. Grab your stuff. Yep, and... Don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Right, if you leave anything behind, you can always contact us to let us know. Our email address is tombofideas at gmail.com. What's your favorite Christmas comic? Please let us know, and we'll love to hear from you. You can also contact us at our Blue Sky account... It's at Tomb of Ideas. Instagram is at Tomb of Ideas. And, oh gosh, we're on lots of stuff these days. Facebook. We're on threads. Yep, facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. Threads at Tomb of Ideas. And, of course. And, of course, you can find our entire back catalog at cinepunks.com. That's cinepunks with an X. You'll find our show, along with a lot of other great shows, dropping episodes over the holidays, including The Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, Horror Business, and much, much more. God bless us, everyone. But until next year, Tomb Believers. Happy holidays! Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Lovers, Excelsior! Ha 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 ha!